Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Owasso, Oklahoma. Our passion is to show that grace changes everything in Jesus Christ by equipping you to rest in worship, grow in community, and rediscover your calling. To join our body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at trinityowasso.com. Lauren Maria Sri, will you marry me? Questions like that beg a response, don't they? If you've ever proposed to someone or you've ever been proposed to, you know you can't just let that question <laughs> sit. And if you want to enjoy your Sunday afternoon, you can, you can go to YouTube and search proposal fails and watch gut-wrenching videos of guys who, without letting their girlfriends know and often doing it in public, propose at the wrong time. But when it's the right time and a couple is in love, it's a question that you can't leave unanswered. And if the question is yes, then you're off to the races. There's a date to be picked. There's a venue to be reserved. There's a minister to call. There's a baker to enlist. There's a florist to hire. There's honeydews to host, and there's showers to be held. I mean, do you remember, for those of you who are married, and do you know if you have close friends who you have been, that there is so much to do between the proposal and the wedding. Why? Because anticipation propels you to preparation. Here's another question that also prepares you for preparation. Thursday, your final exam will be at 8 a.m. Now, that also propels you to preparation, doesn't it? But even me just saying those words kind of like creates a uh, <laughs> in you. And some of you know that. Some of you have taken a firefighter exam recently. You've done a, a flight check ride. Some of you have taken the CPA exam. Uh, some of you have, uh, have taken the bar recently. Some of you have prepared for the NCLEX if you're nurses. Some of you engineers have taken the PE exam. Like you know what this is like, whether you're a high school student have, who have finals, or you're a college student who face midterms and finals, or you're a professional who takes a licensing exam, you know what it's like to have the anticipation of an important date propel you into preparation. But notice that both of those events, the proposal of marriage and the timing of a final exam, they both motivate you to prepare, but they have totally different motivations and emotions associated with them, don't they? The wedding is joyful, and you can't wait. You just, you want to celebrate. Like, this is going to be amazing. And for many people, the wedding is like the highest day of their life. And for those of us who take exams, you face the exam with fear. You don't want to disappoint. You face it with anxiety because you don't want to fail. You face it with a kind of, I don't know, you're scared. I wonder which of those two ways do you face the Christian life? Anticipation propels preparation. And it's amazing to me that in the Psalms, when they're writing about what it's going to be like at the end of time when Christ comes again to rescue us and bring us into his glory, they don't use a final exam as the metaphor. Because just as we confessed that Nathan led us in the Heidelberg Catechism, 
know, why is it a comfort that Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead? And notice what we read. I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to, to the judgment of God in my place. And he has removed the whole curse from me. And Psalm 45 welcomes you into the anticipation. It propels you for preparation for who you are becoming in Christ. And it motivates you by the hope and the joy of a wedding, not the fear and the anxiety of a final exam. And I know some of you have grown up in the church all your life. And church has essentially been for you a place where you come where you feel convicted and you begin to be manipulated by the shame and guilt of your sin and you go out and you try to live a better life and you fail and you come back again the next week and you get beat up again by the pastor and then you leave trying to live a better life and then you come back again the next week and it's just like this, you know, it's like you're flatulating yourself like they used to do in the ancient medieval days. You're trying to beat yourself up and slowly but surely you fall into this kind of works righteousness. If I can just do better this week. And I want to say to you, repent of that way of thinking because the gospel is so much greater than that. And the sons of Korah, who were the descendants of one who rebelled against Moses with 250 others, and the Lord judged in the wilderness, these Levites, these descendants of Korah, write of the, on the eve of a king's wedding, and they write about with the beautiful splendor of the king and the majesty and the joy of the bride and the legacy of their marriage. And so this morning, I want to invite you to see three things in this text. First, I want you to see the king. That takes us down to verse 10. I want you to see the bride, and I want you to see the legacy. The king, the bride, and the legacy. Because this text is not about an ancient marriage of one of Israel's kings. And we don't know which king it is. Maybe it was Solomon's marriage to the, uh, to the daughter of Pharaoh. We don't know. And the, that's not the point. The point is the sons of Korah are writing this historical poem on the eve of a king so that you and I can look through it to see the beauty of Christ. And every stanza, there's 14 stanzas in Hebrew in this text, and every one of them are laden with characteristics of the king. So let's look at it together. In verses 2 through 9, you see three characteristics of the king. And you have to love the way that this psalm uh, begins. It, it reads in English almost like the rhythm and the rhyme of a Hebrew poem might read if we knew Hebrew. Listen to the, it almost rhymes, doesn't it? My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. It just drips. And this is, this is no poem of burden for these authors. This is not like they are girding themselves for a final exam. This is them celebrating. I will write about this all day long because it's so beautiful. The writer couldn't wait to write this song. And he's inviting us, the church, to sing it. For that's indeed what they have done for millennia. It says in Psalm 42, it gives us his first characteristic. His first characteristic of the king is, number one, his beauty. Notice verse 2. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. 
and grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. His unequaled beauty and his unequaled speech. Isaiah 53 says that he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like the root out of parched ground, and he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. It's a picture through Isaiah of the prophecy of how the world rejects Jesus and how oftentimes people don't really get the beauty of Christ. And indeed, on the cross, he was not to be admired and he was not handsome as he hung there on the cross for you and for me. And today, we all have neighbors everywhere in the world who looks at the gospel and they hear about the church and they go, oh, that's so sweet. If they need that crutch, well, so be it. And the world creates their own crutches. They create their own doctrine. They're religious in their own way. But here, you see a picture of the one we worship, and he is beautiful. We know that we have never seen anybody who compares to him. Where else have we seen such kindness? Where else have we seen such mercy than in the person of Jesus? Where else have we seen such perfection, such love, such gentleness, such patience, such holiness? We are like the woman at the well. So the woman who left her jar and she went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And the people left the town and they ran to find Jesus. We're like the thief on the cross. And we indeed justly are under the condemnation of death for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. He saw the beauty of Jesus. We're like Peter in the boat. But when Simon Peter said in Luke chapter 5, he, when he saw it, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. Once you see the beauty and the perfection of Jesus, you can't see anything else. He's captivating. When I was in high school, our senior year, we had on the back of our football helmets uh, the jersey number 70. And we wore the number 70 because there was a man that was on our football team. His name was Chris Robinson. Chris Robinson, the summer before his senior year, was in Dallas with his family, and they were rear-ended on the highway. And Chris's neck was broken. And he got trapped in the car, which caught on fire. And by the time they pulled Chris Robinson out of the car, 70% of his body had been burned by third and fourth degree burns. And here was this handsome football player who would joke with us in the heat of two-a-days. And the first time we saw him, we were shocked. Because Chris Robinson had no ears. His face had literally burned off. They later reconstructed his ears, and then they used a, uh, tendons from his own body to reconstruct his nose. Children would look at Chris Robinson, and Chris would say to them, it's okay, you can look. And you can come closer, and you can touch my ear if you want to. 
because they'd never seen anything so ghastly. Children would literally run whenever you saw Chris in the mall. But we on the football team knew what Chris was like before the accident. And when we saw Chris, we saw Chris. We saw the handsome, strong football player that he always was. We, we wore the number 70 and we played for him because of who he is. Even though the world looked at him and they were aghast. And friends, when you see the beauty of your Savior, you don't see him as the world sees Jesus. You see him dying a righteous death for you. And you don't look and say, well, I want to I do it myself. No, you can't. He has done it for you, and he compels us by his beauty. He is handsome, verse 2, and oh, his words. Listen to the way he speaks. Not merely his physical beauty, but grace is poured upon his lips, the psalmist says. In Matthew chapter 7, it says, when Jesus finished this saying, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching as one who had authority, not as their scribes. In John 7, Jesus, the officers answered, never has a man spoken like this. In John chapter 6, Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? Do you want to follow me? And Simon Peter says to him, Lord, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Captivated by his beauty. Beauty of his presence and the beauty of his words. Jesus speaks differently, doesn't he? He doesn't speak like a prophet who says, thus saith the Lord. Jesus says, I say to you. He doesn't speak like the Pharisee who tell men to carry their burdens. Jesus says, bring your burdens to me. He doesn't speak like a chief priest who read the law that I must be stoned. Jesus says that I am forgiven. Go and sin no more. No one has ever spoken like Jesus speaks. There is none so fair and so gracious as our Lord. Therefore, you are blessed forever. You are the most blessed. You're the best of the best. You're the highest rank. Nothing can compare with you. And we, the church, as we sing this psalm, are propelled into preparation the preparation of obedience, not because we're trying to earn his favor, but because we have received a righteousness that is not our own. Amen? We have it. We are like the bride who's been proposed to preparing for the wedding day, and she just cannot count the days down fast enough until the big day when she comes to receive her groom and all of his joy. Therefore, the Lord your God has blessed you forever. You are beautiful beyond description, Jesus. Too marvelous for words, too wonderful for comprehension. Like nothing ever seen or heard. Who can grasp your infinite wisdom? Who can fathom the depth of your love? You are beautiful beyond description, majesty enthroned above. It's a love song. And you see his beauty. Characteristic number two, verses three to five, you see his cause. In verse three, no doubt we have a great temptation here to read this as the glorious return of Jesus. And it is good and right, of course, to do so. 
when we read, gird your sword on high, O mighty one, in the splendor of your majesty, in your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. We have the vision of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, where he, with a double-edged sword comes, uh, that comes out of his mouth as John receives the prophecy of Revelation. You have one who is mighty and victorious, striding to one day conquer all evil and rise victoriously over it. But before you get to that great day, and we will get there, Jesus first comes in mighty in battle and victorious in the incarnation. Because he came and he girded himself with human flesh because he knew that you, and he did it out of love, were dead in your trespasses and sins. And Jesus came and he took on flesh and he girded his sword, the sword of his word, and he brought the good news of the gospel. The blind were healed. The lame walked again. And Jesus gave us a snapshot of the glorious cause of the kingdom. And he says to us, when we had no concept of what truth or meekness or righteousness was, blurred as they were by the false prophets of Israel and blurred as they are by the false prophets today, Jesus shows us what is true, what is beautiful, and what is good. And even in the entire system of Jewish religious inworkings of the day when Jesus came, even though they were built to just pour onto people the legalistic moralism that enslaved them even deeper. Jesus comes to us today and says, oh, I know you've been at church for many, many years, and I know that you have a lot of friends who don't go anymore, and I know that sometimes um, you wonder if it's all worth it, but I'm here to tell you that I am freeing you from your legalistic moralism. And... I'm also freeing you of your pagan religion that rejects me altogether, and I'm giving you something different, the third way. My very presence through the work of Christ on the cross. And for those who understand his cause, his righteous cause, verse 5, your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, and the people's fall under you. If you're in Christ, you know the pain of conviction of sin. And if you're here today and you're not a believer and Jesus is becoming beautiful to you, it's the arrow of his love piercing your heart and inviting you not into a self-help method but into the freedom of receiving a righteousness that is not your own that was given for you, purchased on the cross. And as those who've been received, uh, uh, delivered from the deceptive deceitfulness of false leaders and false prophets, we sing to our king with a new motivation because anticipation propels preparation. And so we are like the woman caught in adultery, nearly stoned, but yet freed by Jesus walking away and singing songs of deliverance. We're like Mary Magdalene. Freed by demons, but singing in love for the one who fought my battle and won our war. And we are like Peter, who even after failure confessed, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Give me the strength to do so. Jesus came, and he did battle for us. And he conquered death, and he set the captives free. Romans 5, 8, verse 1. One says, therefore, there is therefore now no, what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 
For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so we have the freedom not only to obey him because of his beauty, but we have the freedom to repent because of his cause. We can do so because we know that we have his acceptance. We can say with Paul, wretched man that I am, Romans 7, who will set me free from this body of death? And it was Jesus who came in the likeness of sinful flesh to propose to you, to extend his hand to you and say, come and let's celebrate and let the motivation of your Christian life not be fear of judgment, but let it be his deep love and acceptance of you because he's accomplished it on the cross. Do you know that kind of love? We love him because of his righteous cause, and in the end, he will come again, and he will stomp out evil and sin forever. Amen? Revelation chapter 16 says that what he began in Bethlehem, he will finish in the valley of Armageddon, and he will one day, someday, take everything that you see on the 6 o'clock news He will one day, someday, take every evil. He will one day, someday, take everything sad, and it will come untrue when he comes and rules and reigns. So the question is, he will either rule over your heart now through the conviction of sin and our repentance before him because of his love for us, or we will stand before him one day and the sharp arrows of God's judgment will pierce us and we will be separated from his grace forever in hell. But he will rule which takes us through the third characteristic we see. We sing of his beauty. We sing of his cause. Verses 6 through 9, we sing of his reign. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and you've hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. When, when the author of Hebrews we don't know uh, who wrote the book of Hebrews, but when he is writing, or, or she, perhaps, we don't know, is writing the book, and they're looking in this, the sermon, they're looking for a ways to describe the beauty of Jesus. He pulls in this verse from Psalm 45 in Hebrews chapter 1, like we read earlier this morning. Every other king who has ever sat on a throne disqualified himself from being a king forever. Why? Well, because he died. Saul, even in his disobedience. Solomon, even before his death in his adultery. Even David shed much blood that was unfit for his role as king. And down and down and down on the line, you trace the the kings of Israel, not one good king. You trace the kings of Judah, and you can find a handful. Every generation, every culture, every time, every place. It was Arnold uh, uh, Toynbee who wrote in 1961 a study of history, and, and it took him, like he wrote it beginning in 1934, 35. He didn't finish it until 1961, and there were, there were 34 civilizations that he traced, the rise and fall of these civilizations, every single one of them. The Romans, the Greeks, the Babylonians, the Syrians before them, the nations after that the heights of the, of the allies in World War II, and slowly but surely, every one of these fell. But Jesus, the high king, 
rules and reigns and will forever. Even I dare say, as we, as we are so grateful for the country that we live in, we shouldn't fear as Christians because one day, someday, Jesus will complete all that he has begun in us. And even if this country that we dearly love is just another one of those 34 that fall one day, heaven forbid that happen, we have a king who in his providence makes us secure. Amen? And he holds us tight. And he loves us with an everlasting love that if you knew that kind of love and it really sank into your heart, you would sing like a proposed bride waiting for her wedding day because he's so beautiful. And then in verses 10, we jump and see the, we, we see the bride. They describe the bride. And, and the bride here, there's just a passing comment about, about her, her beauty. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. She's a daughter. But all the attention is on the king. And I, I love verses uh, 10 through 12. It's almost, like, it's almost like you have a nagging mother telling the daughter, hey, like, win his hand. <laughs> Do whatever you can to win the heart of the king. Go after him. Leave us. Leave your father. Leave me. Leave your siblings. You run, to, run to him. He's beautiful. Go for it. Do it. We want you. And it's just like she, it says, for your, uh, forget your people in your father's house. The king will desire your beauty. It's like nothing, nothing is worth the cost of hesitating before King Jesus. He's beautiful. He loves you. It's as though teaching this psalm in the seminary of Jesus with his disciples, he may have stopped here and said in Matthew 16, 24, if anybody wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus said in Mark 10, truly I say to you that there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. As a pastor, one of the highest privileges I have is to hear your stories, some stories of which you've never shared with anybody else. And some of you who have grown up in families that are just a total mess and a train wreck and very hard and there's deep scarring and there's trauma in your life, I want you just to take a second and look around this room. Look at the mothers and the fathers and the sisters and the brothers that your Savior has said you will have in this time. And we need each other, church. We sing of his beauty together. We don't get arrogant because we know our theology or we, we can memorize books of the Bible. Like we, when you understand the gospel, it humbles you to the dust. And you lock arms with fellow believers and you say, come, let's sing of the beauty. We're like engaged brides coming to our groom. Let's sing in joy, awaiting the wedding day, motivated by joy and love because of his beauty because of his cause, because of his reign. And what you see in these verses, in verses 10 through 12, because of his value. Hear, O church, hear, O trinity, and incline your ear. 
forget everything. Jesus is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found, and in his joy, he sold and he bought that field. You will be protected. You will be covered. You will share in Jesus' glory. You will share in his righteousness. You will share in his inheritance. Oh, Trinity, see the value of the great king and do whatever it takes to win his heart because you already have his acceptance. So it gives you confidence to go and deny yourself, husband, for the sake of your wife. And it lets us, like Ruth, lay ourselves at the feet of Boaz and pray that he spreads his garment over us. It lets us take risks like the sour Phoenician woman and beg at the feet of Jesus for the healing of our daughter. It says, go, dear friends, tear a hole in the roof and lower your friends. Do whatever you can to let them hear the good news of Jesus. Climb the tree, Zacchaeus. Make sure you find Jesus. Go, blind man. Don't stop crying out. Son of David, have mercy upon me until you catch his attention. There is no value higher than that. Paul said, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things as loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may obtain to the resurrection of the dead. I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses and land. Yes, I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands than to be the king of a best domain and beheld in sin's dread's sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world can afford today. The king's beauty, the king's cause, the king's reign, and the bride sees his value, and the bride is his prize. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes and are woven with gold. It's describing in verses 13 and 14 that she wants to be worthy for him. And so too, we at the end of time, church, will be swept away into the presence of the king, and he is preparing you. Like the Holy Spirit is preparing you now to be the spotless bride in the presence of Jesus one day. Just think about that for a second. Well, Jesus is like, God, you're not kind to me. You've let me lose my job. You're not kind to me because my children turned out different than I expected. No, Jesus is preparing you for something far greater than you could ever hope or imagine. Do you you see it? The gospel is not just something to be believed in. It is a worldview through which you see everything else in life. And he propels you by the motivation of joy and love to live into who you already are, accepted in him. And so don't be afraid to run to repentance. Don't be afraid to fail. Your Father in heaven loves you. He's there for you, and he covers you with the spotless righteousness of his son. Amen? We need to do a little amen because, oh, this is amazing. 
You see the beauty of his, you see his beauty, you see his cause, you see his reign. The bride helps you see his value and the bride becomes his prize. You see how precious Jesus himself is that makes the bride beautiful. Lastly, you see his legacy. You see his legacy. Verses 16 and 17, when it speaks of sons, this is not like offspring in the sense of, uh, that we think of it. It is the reality of his unending legacy and reign. One day, someday, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day, someday, the whole world will be made glorious and his glory will fill the world as the waters cover the sea. And at the end of time, when Christ returns, Jonathan Edwards writes this, then the church shall be brought to the full enjoyment of a bridegroom, having all tears wiped away from their eyes, and there shall be no more distance or absence. She shall then be brought to the entertainments of an eternal wedding feast and to dwell forever with her bridegroom, yea, to dwell eternally in his embraces. And then Christ will give her his loves and she shall drink her fill. Yea, she shall swim in the oceans of his love. Jesus is preparing you now by giving you little tastes of being satisfied in him for the day when he makes you spotless, O Trinity. And he brings you before him beautiful in raiment of righteousness that you did not earn. And you swim in the oceans of his love. Anticipation propels preparation. But we do not prepare as those taking a final exam because Jesus has already taken the exam and he passed it. And we get his grade. We prepare as one who has been proposed to, one who the groom has committed himself to, to see it through. We prepare as though we're preparing for a wedding with joy and gladness, and we do everything we can. We work out, we get in shape, we get checked out, everything we can to get ready to be prepared for our king. Are you doing that? Where in your life is the Holy Spirit perhaps convicting you, and you're facing it like an exam rather than like a wedding? Celebrate like a wedding because it is God's act of kindness, his kindness, Romans says, that leads you to repentance. And we, therefore, can have boldness and humility. We can obey when it is hard. We can repent because we are accepted, not in order to be accepted. And one last thing in this psalm. All through the summer as you study psalms, you get used to seeing these little scribal uh, um, preparatory phrases at the very beginning that the scribes put in there and that they're included in the canon of Scripture. And this one has a funny phrase, according to lilies. <laughs> what does that mean? Shoshamin in Hebrew. And the word can also mean intend to change. Just like a flower blooms. So also the psalm, when you're captivated by his beauty, when you see his cause, when you see his reign, when you see his value and you see the prize and you see the legacy, you are changed because he has said to you, come unto me all who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. This is a love song to our King. And there is none like him, none more deserving, none more beautiful or wise. There is no other who sets us free. 
and there is no other who reigns in such righteousness and there is no other treasure like him. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Trinity, please visit our website at trinityowasso.com.